Let's pray. Father, thank you for your extravagant grace toward us. Uh, Lord, I know uh, it's true of me. Lord, I bring very little to this moment other than my pride and insecurity. Yet I offer uh, you my five loaves and two fish. Lord, I offer you my water. And uh, Lord, I ask you to turn it into wine. Lord, I ask you to turn uh, that little amount of food uh, into enough to feed 5,000. Lord, because the power does not rest in my abilities or my surety or in my hearer's abilities or my hearer's surety, but it uh, rests alone in you. And so, Lord, would you be at work through your word by the power of your spirit, we ask. Amen. Uh, I'm going to kick this thing off with a quote uh, by an old dead guy, uh, one of the ancient church fathers, Tertullian. Here's what he said. Uh, Just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between two errors. I'll say it again. Just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between two errors. And the errors that Tertullian is talking about is religion on one side and irreligion on the other. Or to put it in other words, legalism on one side and antinomianism on the other. Let me use another set of words. Moralism on one side and relativism on the other. And what religion and legalism and moralism, what they say to you is that you have to live a good and holy life in order to be saved. That's one of the errors of the Christian church. And then on the other side, what you've got over here, the irreligion, the relativism, the antinomianism. And what the error over here is telling you is that because you're saved, you don't have to live a good and holy life. And both of these errors are constantly trying to corrupt the message of the gospel. It's trying to steal away the power of the gospel to change us. So it's really important that we draw very clear distinctions between religion and irreligion with the gospel. And what you see, see this acutely when, in Luke 15. You know, Luke 15 is the parable of the prodigal son. In the parable of the prodigal son, you have a father and you have two sons. The younger son comes to the father and asks him for his inheritance early. The father gives it to him. He runs off. He spends all of his money on what the text says, wild living. And he spends all of his money. He ends up eating the food of pigs. And he comes to his senses, is what the text says. He comes to his senses because he remembers, oh yeah, I have a father at home who loves me. And so he turns from the pig's pig's pen, he he heads home, and while he's on the driveway, his father spots him from far off, runs to him, embraces him, kisses him, gives him a robe, shoes, and a ring. And there never is in the parable an, an episode of scolding. He never scolds his son for the way in which he has lived his life. And then the father decides to throw in this massive party. The massive party, the servants are getting it all together. The music has started and the son, the older son, is out in the fields. And when he's out in the fields, he hears this ruckus going on in the party. And he asks one of the servants in the field with him and he says, hey, what's going on? 
What's going on with this big ruckus inside? And the servant says, well, your younger brother's come home. Your father has thrown a party for him. And you expect the older son to be happy, but he's not. He's angry. He refuses to go into the, into the party, but instead he finds his father and begins to sulk to him. He says, I've served you many years. I've never disobeyed your command. And you've never given me this kind of party. How can you throw a party for my younger brother who spent all your money on prostitutes? Well, I've been out here working. And the father responds and says this, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother, for he was dead and now is alive, for he was lost and now he's found. So you see in this parable both of the heirs, don't you? You have the younger brother, and the younger brother represents irreligion. The younger brother represents antinomianism. It represents relativism. He, He lives by doing whatever he thinks is best. He's living in rebellion. And you've got the older brother. He's living according to legalism and religion and moralism. He's just trying to do a good job. He's just trying to have this absolute commitment and do the job that's at hand. But both of these brothers have the same thing in common, don't they? Neither live with an assurance that their father actually loves them. Neither lives with the, with the idea of, I'm going to enjoy my father today. And they're both wrong. And that's the space we live in, too. We all either want to do whatever we feel like, or we want to live by the rules. And the two types of people, they look radically different on the outside, because one's principled and the other's a free spirit. And then the gospel comes to them and critiques them both. The gospel comes to the religious person and says, you don't save yourself by your good works. And the gospel comes to the irreligious person. It comes to the rebel and says, hey, just because God loves you doesn't mean that you get to live however you want. So who do you identify more with? The younger brother or the older brother? If you're not sure... Ask someone who knows you well, and you might be surprised. But how do you get realigned? How do you get retuned with the gospel instead of falling off unto either error? How does it happen? What do we need? And I think that's where Ezra chapter 7 and 8 can help us. Let's just read verses 1 to 10 uh, from what's printed in your bulletin. Now after this... In the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Bucky, son of, uh, that's probably not how you say it, uh, Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. All right, let's just stop there for a moment. Why five verses? Why does he go back so many generations? Because what he's trying to show us, Aaron was the first priest uh, of the Israelite nation. He's trying to show you Ezra is in that line. All right, verse six. This Ezra, this priest Ezra, went up 
from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which is in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set in his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The word of the Lord. So uh, tonight, Ezra chapter 7, 8, this is the fourth of five messages in Ezra. Uh, The first six chapters is what we've already covered. And what we saw in the first six chapters is that God has uh, released uh, his people from Persia. And he did in a really strange way. He released it by giving this pagan king, uh, Cyrus, uh, that he that Cyrus was going to declare this edict to let the people who were Israelites who lived in Persia, who were in captivity. And he said, hey, uh, Cyrus said, hey, you guys are all going to go back to your homeland. You're going to build your sacred temple, your beloved temple, and I'm going to pay for it. And so Zerubbabel and Jeshua, two of the leaders, they go with about uh, they go with several thousand people. They go build the temple even with some opposition, and it's completed at the end of chapter 6. And that's what the first two chapters are really all about, are about the building of God's house. And then in chapter 7, we're introduced to the author of the book, Ezra. And Ezra 7 to 10 aren't about the building of God's house. They're much more about the reforming of God's people. And we see the reforming of God's people begin here in chapter 7 and 8. And just like we talked about at the beginning of the sermon with the prodigal son and these two heirs, what we see in these first ten verses is God's free grace to Ezra. And we also see how that free grace changed Ezra's life. So let's first look at God's grace to Ezra. You see this reoccurring theme in chapter 7 and 8 of the hand of the Lord. Look at chapter 7 in in your bulletin. You see in verse 6 and then in verse 9, And then in verse 28, which is also in your bulletin, you see in all three of those instances the hand of the Lord on Ezra. And if all of chapter 18 was in our bulletins, you would see that in verses 18, 22, and 31, God's hand is on not just Ezra, but Ezra and the rest of God's people. So you have these six instances of the hand of the Lord being on them. And you begin to see what made Ezra so great. You begin to see what made God's people so great because of this repetition. And what Ezra is trying to tell us is that the reason they're so great is the hand of the Lord. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 answers this question. Why did Ezra find favor in the eyes of the king? Hand of the Lord. Look at verse 9. How was Ezra and the rest of the people able to make it back to Jerusalem, the hand of the Lord. Verse 28, where did Ezra find the courage to lead the people of Israel? The hand of the Lord. And so what Ezra is doing here is that he's readily crediting his gracious God for all of his accomplishments. 
The hand of his God has made him courageous. The hand of his God has made him humble. The hand of his God has made him wise and has given him the ability to lead. Is that the way you see your life? When I began to think about, man, when was it in my life? When, when was it in my life that I knew that the hand of the Lord was on me and I really had no business being where I was? Well, there's been a lot of instances. Uh, getting married, having children. Those were all instances for sure. But one that came to mind was the one where I was sitting about right there. Not here in this room, but here at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. In August of 2014 is when I was ordained into the gospel ministry. And I mean, I've been sitting there and I, I begin to think back. This, uh, this guy is belting, great is thy faithfulness. And, it, and I was sitting there just a puddle of tears uh, as he was singing the song. And I began to have all the, the, this, the, this like photo album of pictures just going through my brain of how God had been faithful to me. I began to see pictures of me with my grandmother watching her read her Bible. I began to see uh, my pastor growing up pleading with our church to believe in Jesus. I began to see uh, people who were just a little bit older than me in our church, how they had made significant investments in my life. I began to think about when we were in semin- when Jen and I were in seminary and began to think about waking up at 4.30 to, su- to study uh, Hebrew verb paradigms. I began to think about all the tests that they daggum make you take when you're in this denomination to get ordained and uh, how much I'd studied for this daggum test and failed a couple of them a few times before I'd take them again. God had been faithful to me. And I was sitting there, I was acutely aware that there is no way that I could sit in that seat and take those vows if it wasn't for God's hand being on me. I'd had so many chances to utterly wreck my life and God had preserved me. So when you think about the things that have, have, that, that have looked like you've accomplished in your life, where do you readily give credit? Now, I'm not talking about the kind of Tim Tebow credit that happens at the end of football games. I'm talking about the kind of credit that goes deep into your heart of hearts. So the hand of the Lord was on Ezra, but there's another side of the hand of the Lord being on Ezra. He also had to be faithful to his calling. He had to steward the grace that had been given him. Ezra could have been really sloppy about it. He could have been really sloppy about having God's favor. He could have been sloppy about it, and he could have used it, his calling as a power play over the people. He could have used his calling as a way to make himself rich. Because what you see in chapter 7 and 8 is that God's people who were in Persia gave him a ton of money, as did Artaxerxes, the third king who'd given him money to help him build their temple. And he could have taken all that for himself, but he doesn't. He's not sloppy. Instead, he puts his gifts to good use for God's glory. So how do you do that? How do you not be sloppy with the grace that God's given you? Look at verse 10. I want you to catch the three verbs here as we look at verse 10. Ezra had set his heart to study. Say study. study. Let's do it again. Ezra had set his heart to study. the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it. All right, so let's, let's do it all together. Study, do, teach. One more time. Study, do, teach. You see the progression. They all build on one another. It's like one, two, three. It's kind of like ABC. So let's look at studying. 
We know from verse 6 of chapter 7 that it says that Ezra was skilled in God's law. Now, we don't exactly know how he got to be skilled. We don't know what his exact habits were, but studying at least means the unrelenting ambition to know God's word. There was this great curiosity for him about who God was and how God revealed himself to the world through his word. Does that kind of unrelenting ambition describe you? Does that kind of curiosity describe you? Now, studying is important, but it's really insufficient. Studying, it does engage your brain. It does get at the cognitive. It does get at the academic, but it leaves large portions of who we are as persons untouched. And this is a problem that many of us have as Western Christians, especially Western Christians in our tradition. We think we can conquer anything if we'll just learn more. If we just think hard enough, then we can master something. We look like uh, what one professor of mine called lollipops. We have really big heads and really little bodies. But here's the problem. You can't be reduced to being only or even primarily a brain. We're way more complex than that. And that's why our verse, verse 10, starts filling this out. With the next verb, do. Doing. Ezra studied God's word. He does God's word. And doing it highlights the need for consistency. It it highlights the need for experience. It, It means that our studying must go from precept to practice. It means that our studied ideas must make their way into our hearts. Our doctrine must change our lives. God's word is to be embodied. And most professing Christians know more than they do. You know who that sounds like to me, besides me? Satan. Satan knew what God said, and he used those words to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan quotes the scriptures to Jesus when he's tempting Jesus in the desert. James chapter 2 says the devil believes that God's one. It means the devil's got good theology. And you know why he's got good theology? You know why he was able to tempt Adam and Eve and he's able to tempt Jesus? Because he'd studied the scriptures. But you know what Satan doesn't do? He doesn't do them. Because doing means that he must submit to the author of them. Now, when I say do, I'm not talking about being perfect. What I mean by do is that there's this desire to not just be hearers of the word, but be doers also. It means we're hungry to put principles into practice. It means we're constantly examining our lives, not to see whether or not we're a Christian, but we're constantly examining our lives To get our lives in line with God's truth. I'm reminded of uh, this. I didn't. This didn't happen to me. But I read this this week where a a preacher he said, um, 
that he was at the back door of his church. And somebody came by and said, Pastor, what a wonderful sermon. And you can give me all those you really want. But um, this Pastor Sanders, you know, somebody comes in and said, Pastor, what a wonderful sermon. And the pastor replied, well, that remains to be seen, doesn't it? And what he's saying is, is that the Bible's meant to be lived. It's not only meant to be heard. And this was Ezra's approach. Because he didn't just study it, he did it. Now look lastly at teaching. Now if you study the scriptures, you do the scriptures, now you're ready to teach them. Ezra didn't start as a teacher, he became one. He wasn't just smart and had the ability to communicate publicly. It took years, years of studying as a priest, years of doing God's word, and then God sets him aside to be a teacher. Now, a couple things are worth noting at this point. Don't think that you aren't a teacher. You might say, Marsh, Ezra is a priest. I'm not looking for full-time ministry here, Marsh. I, I, really, I really don't even want to lead one of those things that you call neighborhood groups. I, I, I get it, but you need to know that your life talks. Your doing of God's word has an audience. Your audience might be your immediate family members, might be your roommates, might be your classmates, might be your neighbors, might be your co-workers. That's your audience. And when people watch your life, are they seeing God's word being animated? Are they seeing God's word embodied? If they are, then they're being taught God's word. They might not be being taught in didactic lecture, but they're being taught in real life lessons. Another word. Don't think that you can be in ministry and teach just because you feel called to be a teacher. You can't just jump right into having influence. You can't just jump right into having leadership unless you've studied and done the scriptures as that's being cultivated in your life. Otherwise, when you jump into your position as being a teacher, all you've got to offer is yourself. Just your opinions, just your experiences, and not the riches of God's word. Now let me point one thing out. Now that we've talked about studying, doing, and teaching the scriptures. Look at verse 10. Look what he sets his heart to. It was the law of the Lord. And anytime you see the law of the Lord in the Old Testament or the New Testament, what it's referring to are the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch. And what does Jesus have to do with the Pentateuch? Well, let me give you a, a couple of illustrations. I want you to imagine that Jesus is, this is a big timeline right here. This is a big timeline. Jesus is standing right here at 33 AD. Okay. And back here, you have, uh, at, at the end of eternity, you have a light shining onto Jesus into the past. And so what you see from before 33 AD are shadows of Jesus. So when Ezra is in the Pentateuch, he's seeing shadows of Jesus. All right, let me use another one. Instead of a light, put a fan here. Put a fan have Jesus, the fans blowing on Jesus, and people over here in the past are getting sense of Jesus. 
Now, these Old Testament believers, they had enough revelation of Jesus to put their faith in him. But I think Old Testament believers, if they knew how much we had, they would die to be us. They would die to have this full revelation. They'd die to have more than just sense and shadows. And here's what we know about this Jesus. We know that he studied God's word. In Luke chapter 2, this is the only scene we have of Jesus being a boy. This is the only scene we have between Jesus being an infant and being, uh, uh, coming out into public ministry. This is the only thing we got. Is it's in Luke 2. Scholars think he's about 12 years old and Mary and Joseph can't find him anywhere. And they end up finding him sitting with the teachers of the law. And when Jesus is sitting with them, he's asking them questions. He's listening to them. And these teachers, they're amazed at his understanding. They're amazed at his answers. But why did he have such understanding? What gave him all the answers? Well, he was the author. Now, I know Ezra studied God's law, but Jesus is the one who wrote it. But Jesus did more than just study God's word. He did God's word. Think about the Ten Commandments. Do you want to see what the Ten Commandments lived out looks like? Look at Jesus. Jesus had no other gods before his father. He regarded the Lord's name as holy. He honored his parents. He always told the truth. He used his sexuality constructively. He never got angry. He didn't steal. He was content with everything he had. He did the Ten Commandments perfectly. Now, Ezra might have done them in part, but Jesus Jesus does them exactly. Jesus also taught God's word, didn't he? Jesus, his most famous lesson comes in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. At the end of chapter 7, it reads like this. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, the scribes in Jesus' day, they know the Old Testament. In fact, they've got most of the Pentateuch, if not the whole thing, those first five books, near, over 200 chapters of the Scriptures, they've got it memorized. So they knew their stuff, but they didn't have authority. And that's what made Jesus' teaching so radical. There's this extra umph to Jesus' teaching. People sat up and took note. So yeah, Ezra was inspired But he didn't have that kind of authority. So you see, Jesus is the true and better Ezra. He studied God's word. He did God's word. He taught God's word. And in many ways, he is superior to Ezra. And so when you begin to see all the scriptures that way, the Old and the New Testament, when you see that all of it is whispering his name, you too will be motivated to study, do, and teach God's word. And writing this sermon, I couldn't help but bring my favorite children's Bible uh, up. Uh, This is the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, If you're not a Christian and you want to know more about the Bible, uh, start here. If you are a Christian and uh, the Bible just seems like a dead book to you these days, let me offer you this book. Uh, If you don't have it, I will buy it for you. You just come and tell me to order it, give me your address, and I'll send it to your house. Um, But I want to read this section. This is at the very beginning. It says, God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror. 
to show us what he's like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. This Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. The Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he's done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it. But as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid, they run away, and sometimes they're just downright mean. So no, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. Now, when you see the Bible like this, it'll help you. It'll help you study it, to do it, and to teach it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Yeah, Lord, that you gently uh, prod us from thinking that we can save ourselves. And you also gently prod us from thinking that because we're saved, it doesn't matter how we live. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you keep the gospel sharp in our lives? We pray this in your name. Amen.